what was I here for? And who was I here for? Was I here for me or was I here for some greater purpose? And uh, how was I gonna go about accomplishing that greater purpose? Uh, my name is Justin Redimer. I'm 37. I came to this church in 2011. So when I was teaching in Brentwood at Liberty High School, it was a really comfortable place. Through coaching, through sport, you can reach people who you wouldn't be able to reach in any other context. It was great. Uh, you know, I, I lived in the same community that I coached in. My wife and I got married, I think, after my first year of teaching had enough status within the department to teach whatever I wanted. So I hit a point about five years into teaching. We felt like our time in Brentwood was coming to an end. God was saying, that's not all that there is in life. There is something else called the kingdom. And in order for the kingdom to be built, I need the workers to go. And so I put out a number of job applications for head coaching positions, got a few interviews, but the only one that offered me was Hayward. And I just felt God telling me, go to Hayward. Everyone we told thought we were crazy. Like, why would you leave Brentwood? Uh, why would you leave a job that had tenure? Why would you sell your house that you owned to go find a house to rent? You know, I had a four-year-old son at the time and a two-year-old son at the time, but we just said, yeah, we're gonna do it. Uh, the year before I got there, there was a race riot at the end of the school year. Norteños, who were pretty active on campus at that point, had murdered a Polynesian alumni who was cousins with some of the kids on campus. 150 to 200 students in a massive brawl on the back of the Second Street Gate. And so walking into that was dealing with an entirely different population. The players, I remember I walked in the very first day, I was handed a list of prospective players and I went through and evaluated all their GPAs. And I think our collective team GPA was like a 0.7. In my entire time at Liberty, I maybe broke up one fight. In my first three years at Hayward, I broke up 26 fights. My first year we had struggled. I'd gotten hired June 5th, so I figured it was gonna be tough. My second year, we did okay. And then my third year, we went 0-10. Hayward football has this like huge glorious history, right? Bill Walsh went to Hayward High, Jack Del Rio, and they, Hayward High had never gone a season without winning a game. I was completely doubting God, right? Like, why did you bring me here? You know, my wife had just had a kid and, right, if you fail at another job, you may fail, your boss may know about your failure, maybe the people, your coworkers, right? But if you fail as a football coach, right, it's a public thing. Thousands of people show up to watch you. And so it was incredibly humbling for me. When I had a player who died in April, he was a senior and he had a full scholarship to the University of Wyoming and he drowned off the coast of Half Moon Bay. That was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with. You know, this is a young man who lived right down the street from us. I used to babysit my kids. This is what you brought me here for, uh, to, you know, <laughs> to go through this. Because at every point along the way, you want to say like, no, I want this to be the way I want it to be. Like I wanna grab control of this and like take it for myself. But I think God's call ultimately is to give that up, right? I mean, how can we actually claim to be Christians when we've controlled the, every outcome of our life? I came to the realization that if everything I am is football and football doesn't work out, then what have I done, right? It's about building young men. It's about uh, discipling. It's about being light in the darkness. I was really able to reach a whole different demographic through coaching. Right? Kids that would never step inside of my youth group, but who still looked up to me as someone who could give them like guidance and instruction in life and help guide them and lead them down correct paths of living. Since that 0-10 season, we've been in the playoffs now six years in a row. 
we have been able to put eight young men on scholarship in college. When I first got to Hayward High, teachers were resentful or upset that they would have football players in class, but now they love having football players in class. From a GPA perspective, our team GPA has been like a 2728, which isn't a 3.0, but from where we were, like a 0.7. This past year in a graduating class of 15 seniors, all but two are going to four or two year colleges. What keeps me there, honestly, is the fact that I feel like God's not done with me. Uh, there's still more to be done. There's still more of a harvest to be reaped. When he says something like, for example, carry your cross and follow me, he's not talking about some metaphorical reality. He's talking about the fact that what our call is, is to, to be called and to follow him into that which is uncomfortable for us. If you're called, go, right? Where's there a story in the Bible where someone is called and doesn't go? There isn't one, because as soon as they say, I'm not going, their story ends. Just be ready. It's not gonna happen the way you think it will, um, but be faithful, find a group of Christians to surround you, and what I realized is that I'm a steward. Man, I'm a part of God's narrative in this place to give them encouragement, to give them wisdom and counsel. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm a servant. I'm not a master. And I need to act as such. Justin, thanks for sharing your story with us this morning. We, it's funny, we, we've been talking about these moments in our life when we sense God is calling us to, to step out in faith and change something. You know, in Justin's story, that happened like in the first 20 seconds of the video when God called him to quit his job, to start looking for something new. And a lot of times we forget that the moment that we think is the hard moment, you know, quitting our job, looking for a new job, moving to Hayward, that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. And many of us have been starting to have some of these hard conversations as a result of this series, and we're realizing that the hard conversation is the beginning of the hard work. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we jump into the book of Esther. And we finish off our book this week in Esther chapter 8 and chapter 9. Next week, we'll finish off our series and kind of take a different angle and look at the book of Esther. But we'll finish off our text this week by looking at Esther chapter 8. So you can turn there. If you've been reading along at home, you can finish out the book this week. Well, imagine tomorrow you wake up and get ready for work and head out to your car to leave. And as you're getting into your car, you notice that there's an empty soda can on the ground next to your car. You think that's not my soda can, right? But you're a good person in your neighborhood. You pick it up, you throw it away, you get on your way. The next day, you wake up in the morning, you get ready for work, you go into your driveway, and as you're getting into your car, there's like an empty Doritos bag on the ground next to your car. You think, okay. This is like my routine now. You pick up the Doritos bag, throw it in the trash can, go on your way. The next morning you get up, you get in your car, and as you're walking out to your car, you see that somebody's like dumped a Starbucks cup down your driveway, and there's like latte flowing everywhere. You're thinking, what is happening to my neighborhood? So you start walking around the neighborhood, and you're noticing for the first time that there is trash everywhere, right? McDonald's bags, Snickers like wrappers floating in the breeze, and you're thinking, did like a raccoon invasion happen to our garbage cans? And just then, this Honda Accord drives by and a guy just chucks a water bottle out the window. Like there he is, the litter bug. 
And so you do what any neighbor would do. You stalk him a little bit. Right? You watch and see where he parks. You kind of take a note of his address. Right? And then you devise a plan. You're going to stake this guy out and see if there's a pattern, right? Because your neighborhood has got to be watched, and now you're the neighborhood watch. And so you call in sick because you're a normal person. You're not a crazy person. You call in sick, staking out the guy's house, right? You see him leave. You see him come back. And when he comes back, he comes out of his car. He tosses a McDonald's bag on the side of the road and walks up his front steps like, ha ha, that's where I got him. So you don't go right to his house because you don't want to think you've been like watching his house all day or anything because you're not crazy. And you wait a few hours. Then you go to his house, you knock on the door, and you start the speech you've been preparing all day. It's a very positive one. This isn't going to come to fisticuffs or anything. You're just going to have a nice little conversation about, hey, man, I couldn't help but notice, dot, dot, dot. We both live in the same neighborhood, so I know both of us want a clean place to live, Right? And you go through all the lines that you prepared to try to make this a positive experience. And to your delight, your neighbor responds positively. He says, oh my goodness, I, that, yes, that was me. I'm so embarrassed. I, I do that all the time. I just, I don't, it's just a habit that I have. I just can't, thank you for bringing this up. I will stop immediately, right? And it couldn't have gone better. And so as you're walking back from his house, back towards your house, you're looking for someone to high five. But you notice that while you're looking around for someone to high five, that there's still garbage everywhere. (laughs) Your conversation with your neighbor did not change the fact that there's a McDonald's bag hanging in your tree. And even as you're walking home, you see another neighbor like rolling his, dry, his garbage can down the driveway and hits a bump and a bunch of stuff pours out. And he kind of looks at it. He's like, eh, right? Like our neighborhood's already trashed. What am I going to do, right? Like, no, the culture is changing, right? You get home and you see one of your kids like throw a candy wrapper on the ground. You're like, oh, no, 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 no. We're all infected. <laughs> now, the point of the story is a lot of times the end of a hard conversation is the start of a lot of hard work. As we've been kind of wrestling through this book and what it means to go and have a hard conversation that God has created for us to have and change the culture in which we live or work, some of you may have already realized that when you had that hard conversation, you walked away positively, you walked away realizing that now the hard work begins. Right? You confront your boss on something and it goes well. But then you go, gotta go back to work the next day. Right? You call your teenager out on something, and it goes well. But then you got to call them out again the next day on the same thing, right? You bring up a conversation in front of your family about something that needs to change in the culture of your family, and the conversation is positive. But the next time you have family dinner, it happens again. And sometimes the, the end of the first hard conversation is just the beginning of a season of hard work. So the point of our story today, and as we look at the book of Esther, the point is not to tell you that, right? That's a given. The point of our sermon today is to equip us with a perspective that allows us to keep moving forward when the work continues to be difficult, that allows us to keep on trucking when we move to Hayward and things are harder than we thought it was going to be, to keep on trucking when your boss has a good conversation with you, but the next day at work, it's like everything gets worse. To keep on trucking when you have a nice conversation with your mom and dad about how they need to stop breathing down your neck all the time, but then the next morning, they're breathing down your neck again. What perspective should God equip us with? 
so that we can continue to plow away at the work he's called us to do on planet Earth. As you look throughout the Bible, we see this motif all over the place that we don't ever really notice at first glance. And that's that after God does something amazing, it gets really scary for a second. Right? You think about like a Bible story from Sunday school like Joshua and Jericho. Remember that story? Right? They come up, their enemies encamped in Jericho. There's this big fortified cities with these walls all around it. And God says, march around the city. So they march around the city. And the walls, what do they do? They come at tumbling down. And that's where we end the Bible lesson normally. But what we don't tell the kids in Sunday school is when the walls came tumbling down, all of a sudden, all the enemies are sitting there staring at God's people like, hey, right? We tell them about David and Goliath when David comes out and boom, kills Goliath. And everyone's like, yes. And then we end the story. And we don't tell them that after that moment, all the Philistine army is staring at God's army. You just killed Goliath? Right? We tell them the story of Esther about how she went into the throne room and she changed the culture of the history of the Persian Empire and the king was on her side and Haman died. High five! But we forget about the part of the story that happens in chapter 8. Because after Esther goes into the throne room and has a great conversation with the king and it leads to another conversation with the king that ends to the, with the king killing Haman, destroying the enemy and God's people are celebrating. Mordecai is wearing the royal robe and the crown, the purple linen. Esther is queen. It's unbelievable. The author of Esther reminds us in chapter 8 that the edict that Haman sent out that all of God's people would be killed on a specific date that edict was still live and in effect. And so Esther, in Esther 8, chapter, Esther 8, verse 5, has to come back to the king and beg him to stop the pending massacre. Esther says, if it pleases the king, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. Says King Xerxes, Haman's dead. But the law that Haman wrote in your name is going to kill all my people if we don't stop it. Right? The problem was that the king couldn't stop it. The law was already out there. The people were preparing their swords to kill the Jewish community. And so the king says, you know what? I, I can't stop the edict. But he hands Esther the pen. And he says, Esther, why don't you write a new one? And so in verse 8, the king says, Now write to Esther another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. And so now Esther and Mordecai have to like pen this new law that, that can't cancel the king's law from Haman, but is supposed to like help stem some kind of relief for the Jewish people. And so they write this edict. They say, hey, Jewish people, it's kind of like the Second Amendment for the Jews in Persia. You have the right to bear arms, right? When, when the people of Persia come after you and try to massacre you on this specific day, you can defend yourself by the order of the king. You don't have to just die and take it sitting down. You can fight back, right? And it feels like kind of a, a last-ditch effort to not die, it seems like as we read this that the pending doom of the Jewish people is still about to happen. That the Persians are going to come into their cities, they're going to come into their towns, they're going to bring their swords, and the Jews will try to defend them. 
But maybe it'll be another story where God gives them miraculous victory. Or, or maybe there's going to be this bloodbath and then everyone's going to die. And the moral of the story will be, stop the violence. It feels like all the work that Esther put into changing the culture didn't really do anything. All it gave them was a chance to try to fight back against their oppressor a little bit. Now, that's the hard thing about stepping into these moments that we've been talking about, is that sometimes when you take that step of faith and you, you have the hard conversation that God's calling you to have, and the conversation goes okay, it's almost like you step through this portal and you can't go back to the other side, right? You stood up in the midst of your family and said, hey guys, I've just been compelled to bring this up. I feel like as a family, we've got a, we've got a problem with drinking or with anger or with addiction or, or fill in the blank, right? We've, we've got this problem in our family and I just felt like someone should bring it up. And so I'm bringing it up and you had a good conversation and everyone seemed amenable. But then the next time you had a family dinner, right, someone brings a 24-pack and you're like, oh no. And now they start making fun of you for being like the teetotaler person. You're like, this is backfiring. This is hard. Right, you go to your boss's office. And you have the hard conversation. You say, I just feel like there's some things that are wrong with the culture of this workplace. I feel like there are people who are treated unfairly. And your boss says, you know what? I, I see that too. Would you be willing to draft something up to maybe change this place? You say, absolutely. So you go back, you draft something up, you bring it to the boss. The boss says, yes, this looks great. Let's start pushing this out. But as you start pushing it out, all of a sudden, you realize that you've got this target on your back now. Nobody likes the changes that you like. Everyone feels like you're trying to just advance your own career. They all think you have ulterior motives. It's like all the work that God started, it feels like it's about to just come crumbling down around you. And you start talking like Justin did in the middle of the movie, like, God, why did you bring me here? Did you bring me this far to kill me here? Did you bring me into this conversation this far just to get me fired and kicked out of my company and made fun of? Why did I even start? if this is how it's going to end. I feel like that as I read Esther. It was so good for a while. It seems like the edict that Esther sends out is really not going to be effective to do much of anything. Yet the interesting thing is, we see in Esther chapter 8 and Esther chapter 9 that as this law is sent out from the throne room that Esther and Mordecai wrote, that the king signed, it actually has a very powerful effect to change everything in the culture. And this is chapter 8, verse 15. It says, When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, a purple robe of five lemon, <laughs> linen, not lemon, linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province, in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And it says this, And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. I read this and think, well, how did, what just happened? How did a law that gave the Jewish people the right to simply defend themselves not just invigorate the Jewish people, but cause fear in the minds of other non-Jewish people so they would convert to Judaism. And it's not till chapter 9, verse 1, as we start to see this thing play out, that we understand what's happening behind the scenes. It says, On this day, when the enemies of the Jews had hoped to empower them, 
The tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. If you have a highlighter, which you don't, but if you did, highlight the tables were turned. I think one of the things that we don't notice at first glance when we read the story, and one of the things that we don't notice when we're living our own story, is that the hard conversation that we have had that sometimes we feel like just leads to more problems actually has the power to change the tide in the culture of the place in which we live or work or have our family. What I mean by that is that when you walked into your boss's office and you started talking a little bit about the cultural stuff that needed to change, and your boss said yes, then you went to go try to do it, and it all fell apart. What you didn't realize was that by winning the favor of your boss, you were slowly shifting the perspective of the leadership that actually kind of leveraged the changes that needed to be made. So in Esther's story, when Esther's edict comes out that says, the king says the Jews can defend themselves, the people of the country read that like, oh no, King Xerxes is backing the Jews now. They thought, well, then what does that mean for me? And even though it seems like nothing would happen with a little edict like the right to bear arms, what actually ended up happening was that the people, everyone who read the law, realized that the power dynamic of the country was shifting and they needed to get on the side of God's people or be willing to be stabbed through by the sword by God's people. One of the morals of the story that we can bring out as we look at the whole book of Esther is that success in one hard conversation will not solve every problem, but it may turn the tides on your battle forever. Right, your one hard conversation with your boss will probably lead to more hard conversations. That's the truth. But the hard conversation that you have might change the tides of the culture in the place that kind of make things start moving in a way they haven't moved before. Right, so if you have a conversation with your teenager and say, hey, this year at school, can we do a little better than last year? Right? Last year was hard, you didn't do your homework, we fought a lot. Like, can we just try a little bit better this year? And miraculously, the teenager says, yeah, let's do it. Like, Whoa, okay, high five, right? No one to high five. And then the first day of school, you get all excited. You go to wake up your kid, and they're just <laughs> sleeping. You're like shaking them, wake up. Like, eh. Oh, no, here we go again, right? And it feels like nothing has changed. But there's a chance that because you've had this conversation, that you could circle back and say, hey, can we talk about this morning? Or have we talked about the fact that, that we're going to try harder this year? This doesn't feel like trying harder, right? And there's a chance that because you had that hard conversation, your teenager is going to say, you're right. I'm going to try harder next time. Right? Teenagers. Let's not just pick on teenagers. Teenagers. Right? Maybe you talked to your parents and said, can you lighten up a little bit this year? I'm working hard. I'm trying to do my thing at work, do my thing at school, do my extracurricular stuff, get into college. I'm trying hard, but I feel like you're always breathing down my neck. And your parents miraculously said, you're right. Sometimes we're a little hard on you. It's because we love you, right? They give you the whole parent line. You're like, well, thank you. You know, like, lighten up. And then you go back to school, and all of a sudden, boom, your parents are down your neck all the time, right? The beautiful thing is, now you've got a reference point. You can go back to your parents and say, hey, remember how we talked about the fact you wouldn't do this this year? You're doing it this year. You're still breathing down my neck, right? Try this, teenagers. This works. It's great. Parents love when you talk to them. That's the, that's the first step. You know, the one conversation you had is not going to change the world. But sometimes the one conversation you had changes the culture. Right? You go confront the litter bug. It doesn't change the fact there's litter in the streets. But it does take one litter bug off the streets. 
And it just changed the culture of your neighborhood. So now as you're picking up trash, no one's throwing new trash. Now as you're talking to another neighbor, like, hey, let's clean up. Let's make our neighborhood beautiful. Like, yeah, I like how it's getting better, right? Culture is changing because of one conversation. And one of the perspectives that we need to equip ourselves with if we're going to live in this world is that God's calling us in these moments not just to miraculously change everything in one simple conversation, but God is slowly changing the culture. He's changing the water out in the fishbowl in which we live. And over time, as we keep moving, as we keep moving forward, it's like this flywheel starts picking up and everything's picking up speed. And for the rest of the book of Esther, it's like this downhill battle, right? Esther and their people, they, they end up winning the battle on that day that was supposed to kill them. Esther goes to the king and says, hey, can we have another day to kill everyone? The king's like, sure, do what you want, right? He's like, let's kill people tomorrow, right? This is a pretty gruesome story. They go on, they kill more people, and the power dynamic keeps changing. God's people are saved, and they're celebrating. They're like, yes, God has delivered us. The problems didn't end when Esther left King Xerxes' dinner. But the culture had changed. Something switched. And the work began to get easier. I know there's a chance that you're sitting here and you're thinking, that's not how it worked for me. I tried to talk to my kid and my kid just slammed the door in my face. I tried to confront my neighbor. They threw a Coke can in my face and slammed the door. I tried to go in my boss's office. I got fired. I've been ridiculed. I've been demoted. I got put in this post where now I don't see anybody anymore, right? It doesn't work. If I was made for that moment, I botched the moment I was made for. That's fair. There's a chance that what God's calling you into is not going to work. That you're going to be facing hard-heartedness. That you might feel like you're winning the battle, but then the culture doesn't change. Things get worse. You get fired. You get kicked out. And I know that's disheartening. I think what we need to understand from the scriptures is that the story that God is writing is bigger than just this one issue that you're facing. I know that's hard when you've got a big issue that you're facing, but as I look at the Bible, I see that all of these stories are all pointing to something bigger, something better, including the story that God is writing in your life today. I see the Jericho story. And I see the walls come tumbling down. I see the Philistine army in Jericho like, oh, right? And then I see God's people like, let's go get them, right? And they rush after Jericho and they destroy the city, right? I see David kill Goliath and the Philistines are like, oh, right? And the God's people are like, let's get them. And then the Philistines run away and they pursue the enemy. I see Esther go into the throne room and King Xerxes says, yes, let's kill Haman. They're like, yeah. And then Esther says, let's go get them. And they kill everyone. And I see even bigger than that, that all of these stories are pointing to one story that would happen 400 years later, right? When Jesus steps onto the earth and sin is destroying people still and death is destroying people still and the world is falling apart still, but God himself writes himself into the story and he steps onto the cross and he defeats sin. He steps out of the tomb on Easter Sunday. He defeats death. He ascends into the right hand of the throne of God in the heavens and he sits down and begins to rule. He dispenses his spirit from that place and believers in Jesus receive the spirit of God and from that moment, they're like, let's go get up, right? So the story that God is writing in your life, you're not like Esther, right? You're not David. You're not Jesus. You're you. And the story that God is writing in your life is not the story that will change human history. The story that God is writing in your life happened 
after the moment that changed human history, when the Spirit of God is intersecting with a human being who loves Jesus, and you're being deployed to bring his mission wherever you go. And the reason that's important to understand is because if the fate of the world was on your shoulders, our world would go to hell, right? Like, literally. The fate of the world is not on your, sh- on your shoulders. The battle you're facing is not the battle of Armageddon, right? Where you stand in the line of biblical history is that you are a human being who is loved by God, who loves Jesus, who's been transformed by Jesus, and Jesus has already won the victory. He's already defeated death and sin itself. And now his spirit is coming into your life and saying, on the other side of the battle being won, now I want to deploy you to start bringing the kingdom into this world. Like Justin said in the video, bringing the kingdom into this world. And so what we need to understand as we start to get ready to move away from the book of Esther is that the battle that's in front of you is not even the major battle of your life. The battle that is in front of you is not the major battle of your life. It's just one fight before the next fight. That that the life that God has given us to live on this planet is one where he's just constantly deploying us, deploying us, deploying us, to push his kingdom into our school, to push his kingdom into the football field a little bit more, to push his kingdom into our neighborhood, to push his kingdom into our workplace. And that whatever it is you're facing, it's not like God has created you for this one moment like Esther. The verse we started the series with is that you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's a plural. That's what I was doing with the S there. Plural. (laughs) Which God has prepared in advance that you might walk in them. The life that God has called his people to live is a life to surrender to the Spirit of God, where we are men and women and kids who are willing to be deployed into any situation that God might have us, and we don't care about the results because it's up to him. We just go, bring it, see what happens. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's not our job to change the world. The world has been changed, and it's our job to bring the kingdom through the Spirit living in us as salt and light in the places where he sends us. I think this is important for us to realize because whenever we study the Bible, you are not David who has to beat Goliath, right? Jesus is the new and better David who beat Goliath. You are not Esther, right? Jesus is the new and better Esther who conquered the king and became the kingdom, right? You are not any of these heroes. Jesus is the hero. You are the person who watched David kill Goliath and you're like, whoa, And then David turns around and says, let's get him. And you said, okay, right? That's you. That's you in the story. And that's a wonderful place to be because you won't win any battles. But the battle has been won. And God is sending you to to go after whatever he sends you to go after, to bring his kingdom to planet Earth. A couple things that you can write down as we move out of the text of Esther. One, remember that life as a Christian is a series of difficult, world-changing conversations. I didn't know if I should write micro-conversations or micro-world-changing, but that's what the Christian life is. is It's a series of these conversations that God is deploying us into to change the world. Sometimes they're actions, sometimes they're words, but it's a series of them. I want us to be encouraged this morning that as you walk with the Lord, these things get easier. Not like the stakes get lower, not like the conversations get easier, but what gets easier is you start to really believe that the results aren't up to you. That God's the one just calling you into it. And so somehow as you become a stronger believer in Jesus, it gets easier in the sense that you're able to just walk in and see what happens. And the weight's not on your shoulders because you're able to learn to put it on the shoulders of God himself. It gets easier. Don't forget that the primary battle has already been won. 
This battle you're facing is not the primary battle of your life or the, the, the world itself. The battle has been won by Jesus. You are just sent by his spirit to go after the plunder. That's your job. Don't forget to celebrate God's victory along the way. You know, the book of Esther, one of the reasons that it's inscripturated the way that it is, is kind of as a, as a story that reminds the people how to celebrate God's work in salvation history. You, know, you could read this week the last chapter of Esther is these rules and regulations and prescriptions around this feast called Purim. And Purim is the, it's the plural of the Hebrew word pur, which means the lot that was cast. Remember the beginning of the story? Haman casts a lot, and it comes up on a specific date. It's like, that's the date the Jews will die. And then the tides turn, and the Jews are saved. And so they celebrate this feast called Purim, like God's lot was different than man's lot. And so they celebrate. And for the last, what, 2,400 years, the Jewish people have celebrated Purim, remembering the way that God shows up and sweeps through and preserves them throughout the history of the world. It's a reminder to celebrate God's salvific work and his hand of salvation in history. So don't forget to celebrate one of the things that Jessica and I did when we went through a difficult time in, in our life, living far away, no money, all that kind of stuff, is we, we got a journal and we started writing down all the things that God did so we wouldn't forget. And I saw those days where it's like, are we alone here? We can go back to the journal and read like, oh no, remember, he's real. He did this work yesterday, right? We're going to survive. On your way out this morning, we've got little Esther journals for you, um, which are just these little books that you can use to celebrate the work that God's doing to record the promptings his spirit gives you, to even wrestle and write with some of these things that he's weighing on your heart for your family, for your community. Use this however you will to start kind of engaging with the Lord on what he's calling you into in the world we live in today. I want to pray for us. Like I said, next week, we're actually going to take a different look at this whole book. We're going to say, what if we're not called to be Esther? What if you're called to be Mordecai? What if your role in the story is not to be the world changer? What if your role is to be the person who helps others to move forward and change in their lives? So that's going to be great next week. Come on back. We'll close out our series on that. But let me pray, and then we'll sing, and then we'll go. Let's pray.